Now, a couple things I want you to know. We're going to have a word of prayer here. Each time we come back together, we're going to pray because I know for one, I need the Lord's guidance. Um, you're not here to hear me or any man or woman at camp meeting. You're here to hear the Lord, and He's here with us. In fact, we're told in these convocations, I don't know if you've read this in the writings of Ellen White and Testimonies to Minute. No, I may have it, the book wrong. But she says it's in the convocations of the church when we are gathered together, especially for the purpose of saving souls. But when we gather together, those are the appointed places where God pours his spirit out. And so, yeah, anytime the church comes together to gather, man, I don't want to miss it. Because the spirit might be poured out there, right? Amen. So I'm glad you guys are here at camp meeting. Um, the training manual, there is a... Uh, we'll be referring to things in the training manual off and on, but we're not obviously reading through it. You can do that yourself. There's some great resources in here on different aspects of soul winning. Uh, so we'll be in and out of it. I'll refer you to that when, when we need to. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit in this class period about discipleship and the Great Commission. And so before we get started, I'd like to pray and invite you to bow your heads with me, if you would, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this beautiful day you've given us here at Michigan Camp Meeting. Father, we thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit. We've been blessed already by the messages and uh, different ministries that uh, have, have ministered here. And Lord, now I pray that the Spirit of Truth would guide us into truth, not just an intellectual truth, Father, but a transforming truth that would help us to be the disciples you've called us to be. Uh, be with us here this morning. Give us ears to hear and hearts to respond, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, now I'm going to go over uh, a little bit of the idea of discipleship and uh, the Great Commission, and then my brother Jim's going to talk about why we don't see the level of discipleship that uh, you will expect to be seeing after we cover what discipleship is. <laughs> so uh, first thing I want to touch on, though, is evangelism. I've, this is, you know, we're Emmanuel Institute of Evangelism, and a lot of times, in fact, most of the time when I've talked to Seventh-day Adventists about evangelism, we understand evangelism a certain way. Um, let me do it this way. I've had people tell me a lot of times, Oh, hey, pastor, we're doing evangelism in my church right now. Now, part of me wants to say, praise the Lord. But you know what they're telling me? And maybe you've done this yourself. What do you think they're telling me that they're doing? An evangelism series. Okay, an evangelism series is only part of evangelism. And it actually is a very small part. It's an important part, but it's a small part of evangelism. The word evangelism means basically... Uh, to, to share the good news. And anything and everything that would be sharing the good news is evangelism. Evangelism is carrying out the great commission of Jesus, which we're going to look at in the scripture in just a moment. When we're talking about it, so the first section is called Seven Reasons for Evangelism, and in, even in the introduction, I share that evangelism is about sharing the good news. Now, you know the word gospel means good news, right? Think about this for a minute. Why would you call anything, what's, what is a 
key, probably the primary characteristic about news? It's bad. No, no, it's not all bad. Okay, it's new. It's informative. It's designed to be shared, right? It's news. News has to be given. It's not a, God didn't make a mistake when he called, you know, the word, we read the word gospel, but it's the good news. It's intended to be shared. It needs to be shared. It was designed to be shared. And um, the reality is this. When you are excited about something, you share it. I don't care how scared you get about it. Your excitement generally overrules your fear. Now, I've seen this. This happens all the time. I've seen it in, look, I've never, in all my time in ministry, I've never had to give a seminar. Okay, here we are. We've got Michigan Men of Faith, and I'm going to have a seminar. Pastor Howard's going to have a seminar on how to share with your friends how your football team is so much better than theirs. <laughs> Well, Pastor, here's the thing. I'm a real Lions fan, but my friend's a Steelers fan, and I, I don't want to upset him by telling him that my team is so much better than his team. I've never had to counsel a guy on that. You know why? Because he tells his friend anyway. Oh, my team just trounced your team in the last game, or whatever it is, right? When you're excited about something, it could be, this is really kind of a chauvinistic thing that I do, and I apologize, I don't know how else to do it, but I, I've never met a man excited about a shoe sale. Well, that's not, I take that back, my younger brother would be excited about a shoe sale. <laughs> but I'll usually do the guys with the football, maybe the girls are big on football, but the, ladies, boy, you get a sale, it's not like, you know, Pastor, I've got some friends that I want to tell them about this great sale going on, but what if I don't, what if I say it wrong? What if I, I've never had to give a seminar on that. When you're excited about something, you just tell people about it. And one of the most interesting things, I've, I touch on this in the introduction on the seven reasons for evangelism, is the story of a man named Joe Cross, a fat, sick, and nearly dead guy. Does that trigger, has anybody know, anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, well, for those who don't, this guy, Joe Cross, was an Australian, is an Australian businessman who, when he reached 40 years old, well, in high school, he was active, he was a football player, in good shape, um, Became a successful businessman, but that meant a lot of board meetings, sitting in the boardroom, sitting in the office, putting on weight. By the time he hit 40 years old, he had developed a skin condition he'd been to a lot of doctors about, and nobody could fix it. He was on all kinds of medications to take care of that, plus his hypertension and everything else. All these bottles of pills, medications for his rashes that he never could get rid of. And um, he weighed 310 pounds. He just felt miserable. And so he got, he began to process, and he, he did this in a documentary. You can see the documentary is called Fat, Sick, and Nearly Dead. Okay, kind of an extreme title there. But he's, this is where he felt, wow, 40 years old, I'm in this terrible shape, worst shape I've been in my life, I'm miserable. He got the idea, you know, when I was a kid, I remember getting in, having an accident, fall off my bike, skin my knee, and I'd want to do something with it. Mom would say, leave it alone, it'll heal if you just let it, you know, let your, you know, take care of yourself, and let your body heal, heal itself. And he said, I wonder if that would work with all my other problems if I take better care of my body. So he worked with his doctor and decided to go on a juice fast. Okay, this isn't apple juice and grape juice and all sugary juices. This is the good green stuff and beet juice. And anybody ever do juicing here? Yeah, kale juice, a lot of kale. 
anyway, has any, the, yeah, the, he goes on this juice fast for 60 days, which is, you wouldn't want to do something like that without a doctor's supervision, whatever. So I'm just, that's a disclaimer here. Michigan Conference won't get in trouble. Yeah. Pastor Howard said we ought to go on a 60-day juice fast. Anyway, <laughs> but what he did is he just, he just juiced every meal for this period of time. And then he called it a reboot. For him, and it does, if you've ever done something like that, my wife and I did like a seven-day juice fast. Okay, you don't add anything. It's just the juice. There's no seasoning. There's no salt. There's no... It cleans out your taste buds. I'm going to tell you that there was... There, a, after a week of this, and you got it... When you do a fast like that, you've got to ease back into your food. Your stomach's not ready for a lot of heavy foods. You know, you know first, something like light fruit, even a smoothie or something, and then you... But I remember when we got off that fast and my wife made a bowl of tomato soup with a little bit of salt in it. And I mean, I took a bite and it was just like, bam, all this flavor because <laughs> I hadn't had you no know, seasonings for that. And that was just seven days. But it, 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 you know, it cleansed his palate. And the whole thing with Joe Cross is this guy went from, from uh, the 60-day juice fast, long and short of it, he cut down to about 200 pounds, got off all his medications, the rashes were gone. He felt better than he'd ever felt in his life. What do you think he started doing? Well, before, before this happened, he started telling people. What he decided to do on this juice fast is, because he had the money to do it, he thought he got this idea, I'm going to come to America. He got himself a car. He mounted a, an extra battery and a juicer right in the back. And he would go and he'd juice stuff right out of his car, out of his hatchback that he had. And he would he'd evangelize people. He became a juicing evangelist. He'd go everywhere and he began to evangelize people about all the benefits. Why? Because of what it had done to him. Now, one of the most spectacular parts of this documentary was a guy he met named Phil Staples. This guy was a truck driver. Phil was weighing close to 400 pounds. It meets the guy at a truck stop. They're chatting together. He's got his hatchback open. He makes him some of his green drink, which is, if I have this right, because I've done it before, apple Green apple, cucumber, kale, and there's something else in there. A little bit of ginger, and um, it's, it's not bad, but it's not a McDonald's milkshake or anything like that. So, Now, this truck driver, this guy has been used to eating truck driver food. He goes to truck stops, and he asked him, so what do you usually eat? Oh, whatever I get at the truck stop. Hot dogs, pizza, you know, the kind of things you get in those little, they sit and rotate in those little warmers forever. That's what he's been eating. So he gives him this juice to drink, and, and the other guy takes a little bit, and he said, not bad. And I'm thinking, you liar. You liar. This guy, there's no way you like this stuff. And honestly, I looked at that, and I thought, this is Phil Staple. This guy would never, never do this, okay? Anyway, he gives him his business card. The, guy, the truck driver goes on his way. A couple months later, he calls Joe Cross, and this is all part of the, the film, and to me, is one of the most inspirational parts, and says, look, I'm I'm hit rock bottom. It's this guy Phil Staples. He had he had kids, but he didn't have. He was divorced from his wife. Didn't have contact with his kids. Hardly saw his family because he just felt so miserable. He was ashamed of himself. Didn't want to be around his kids. I mean, just a miserable, miserable existence. And he, um, so he, finally calls Joe Cross and he says, "Man, I'm ready to change." And so Joe Cross comes to this guy's house. Comes from Australia. Comes over. And gets him set up with a juicer, gives him some pointers, tells him it's going to be the first three days are going to be miserable, literally hell on earth. You're going to hate this. Your body's going to be going. And I, if you've ever done the juice fast, it, it, the first few days, you just want to die. You get under the covers and you just want to die. It's, there's a lot associated 
not just physically, but psychologically, with sitting down to a nice meal. And anyway, um, but this guy sticks with it. And one of the things Joe does is he gives him this T-shirt. He brings him this 2X T-shirt. Now, for a guy who's 400 pounds, 2X T-shirt is a joke. That's, you're not going to wear a 2 And he said, you're going to be wearing this when you're done. Last thing you see, it, last two scenes you see in the documentary are Phil Staples running, which became part of his routine, going out running every morning in that 2X T-shirt and playing catch with his son at the football. <laughs> I mean, I get choked up thinking about it. This is just a physical change. It changed the man's life. So, of course, what do you think Phil Staples began to do? He became a juicing evangelist. And, and, and in the midst of the process, I mean, he was just into it a little bit. He goes to the local health food store, and they let him start putting on classes to teach people how to do juicing. And you can see this. If you haven't seen the documentary, Fat, Sick, and Nearly Dead, check it out. It's very interesting. But I thought to myself, now here's the sad part of the story. I checked up on Phil uh, after... A few years after the situation, I thought, I wonder how Phil Staples is doing. You know, I wonder if it's stuck. And uh, I checked it out. Sure enough, he was still at it. He was, he was still at it. He changed his lifestyle is what had happened. But what, um, what was really interesting in the interview, it's funny, I read this interview. I've got it saved somewhere. The guy doing the interview said the very same thing he was thinking. He said, man, when I first saw that guy at the truck stop, I said, there's no way. There is no way this guy's ever going to do this juicing thing. Okay. That's the same thing we say when we see people. We go to study with them. We're like, man, there's no way this person will ever take a study. They're never going to be interested. They would never become an Adventist. They'd never, they'd never want to give up their, their cigarettes or their caffeine or whatever it would happen to be. And we think that way. And uh, so he asked him, the interviewer, he said, you know, he told Phil, he said, look, honestly, I said, when I saw you on that documentary, I thought, this, there's no way this guy's going to do it. He said, what was it that made you interested? And he said, you know, here I was in the middle of this truck stop, just feeling like I had no direction in life. My life was a, was a failure. And then here comes this guy, this stranger from Australia, out of nowhere, has the same skin condition I do, and he actually takes an interest in me. That's what he said. He actually takes an interest in me. And he said, I thought to myself, you know, it gave him a little bit of hope. Somebody took an interest. You think you can take an interest in somebody? Change the man's life. Now, the sad part of the story is, Phil did slide back into his old habits. And I thought, oh, man, that's tragic. But then I thought to myself, health habits aren't what the world needs. I mean, in part, sure. Jesus is what the world needs. Nothing's going to hold a person steadfast in anything without Jesus Christ. That's what we have to give. We're not just changing a person's physical life. We can change their spiritual life. Evangelism is sharing what you're excited about. And one of the things I think we need to do right here at camp meeting, and I'm myself included, is pray. What did David say? Lord, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Pray that we get more excited about Jesus. And we're going to, it'll make it easier to share Jesus. Make hard not to share Jesus. Evangelism is about sharing Jesus with others. And Jesus, when he left, he gave us a commission. I want you to look at it in Matthew 28. I told my brother I was going to go quick through this, and I get into telling stories, and man, stories take time. Matthew, but they're just so fun to tell. Matthew chapter 28. And verse 18. Well, probably start in verse 16. Matthew 28 and verse 16. 
And we call this the Great Commission. The Bible says in verse 16, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore. You remember the words, go, therefore. I think most people are familiar with that, but don't miss that first part. Therefore is a, is a kind of a summary statement of sorts. Go, therefore. Go for this reason. This is why I'm telling you to go. That's what go, therefore means. Why is he telling us to go? They used to say in, in uh, one of my classes I was in, I'm trying to remember where, I don't even remember where I heard it, but they said anytime you read the word, therefore, always go back and find out what it's there for. Because therefore means for this reason. Wait a minute, for what reason did I miss it? You go back before and it says, all what? Authority has given me in heaven and on earth. Who can tell you and me not to go? Jesus has all authority. Who's above him? Who's above him? No one. So look, Jesus said, you go. I've got all power. Somebody says, oh, you're not allowed to do that here. Sorry. I went to a higher authority and he said, go. And I'm going. And Jesus says, because I've got all power, there's nothing we need to fear. All authority is given me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples, it says in the New King James Version, of all the nations. Now the King James Version says, go teach. The word is metetes in the Greek, but it means to teach them what it means to be a disciple or a follower, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Go therefore and make disciples of who? All the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. And we heard some of that in the morning devotional about that importance of, of the teaching that comes in preparation for baptism. And when we think about the Great Commission, we think about, you know, making church members. But I want to zero in on the word disciple for a moment. There's two things we need to understand here. Number one, Jesus called us to make disciples. And if we're going to make disciples, we have to first be disciples. And if we're going to be disciples, we need to know what it means to be a disciple. I'm going to tell you that for me, and this has come out of, you know, one of the things I didn't share, you're going to be getting the discipleship handbook. I think I told you that. But that, has, that is a production of a committee in our conference called the Training Center Church Committee. And all the Training Center Church Committee is, is a committee that was put together to try to see how we could act, uh, effectively carry out what Ellen White says in the book Christian Service, among other places, that every church should be a training center for Christian workers. Actually, a training school, I think she says for Christian workers. She says all our, ch our churches should be training schools for Christian workers, and we should have classes in all different kinds of lines where people could come and learn how to be faithful Christians. And so um, the ministerial department put together a group of us. Uh, Pastor Cameron is, is part of that, and Pastor Jim Howard, and Pastor Gene Hall, and some others. And, and it was out of that group that the Discipleship Handbook came out of. And uh, in, that, in that context, well in and out of it, came a deeper look at what it means to be a disciple. I'm going to tell you for myself, I just never really given as much thought about really what the Bible says about discipleship. Now, if I ask you what a disciple is, what would you tell me? 
follower. Follower is a very good word. It's probably the first word, one of the first words people come up with, a follower. Why is a disciple a follower? I'm not just talking about a Christian disciple here, because there are disciples of all kinds. You can be a disciple of different, okay, a student, okay? So put those together. Pupil, a learner, is a literal uh, uh, definition of the Greek. So a pupil, a learner, a follower, what, what are they trying to learn? What their teacher's teaching. What are they following for? Why are they following? Why does a disciple follow somebody? Because they want to be like that somebody. Okay? So discipleship is more than just a student, and it's more than just a follower. It's following with a purpose. It's learning with a purpose to be like the one you're following. I want you to see it in the Gospel of Luke. Go with me to Luke chapter 6. This is a review from this morning. Hey, Pastor Cameron. Luke chapter 6 and verse 40. Notice the words of Jesus here. He says, a disciple, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is what? Perfectly trained will be like his teacher. A disciple can never be above the teacher. The teacher is the standard. Okay? And that the purpose of a disciple is not to surpass the teacher. The purpose of the disciple is to be like the teacher. And this is what Jesus is saying here. And a perfectly trained disciple is going to reflect the teacher. That's pretty straightforward, right? And probably not a shock to any of us here as far as when we think about it. Well, yeah, a disciple follows somebody and they want to be like the teacher. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's consider, and this is what I want to do now. I want to consider what it means to be like the teacher. And this, this is key. I want to consider what it means to be like the teacher. Now, if you were to, let me ask you this question. If you were to sum up the life of Jesus, the substance of his life, and I know that's hard because he did so many things, he is so many things, um, and, I, and I'm going to rule one out for you because you could throw this out there. God is love. I know, that's a good one, but we're, not, that's, we're going to take that one out. And you're going to sum up the life of Jesus. What might you say? Or, or better yet, is there a verse you can think of that may do that? Came not to destroy, but to okay, that's good. That's good. What else? Okay, relieving suffering, caring, helping. I, I heard John three sixteen. Okay, to seek and save the lost. Let, let, let me think. Now, let's Luke 19, 10. And he told that in the context. He was talking to Zacchaeus, and he said, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. Now, I'm going to go with that one for a minute. Let me ask you, does John 3, 16 fall under that? Or does it come? Sure, it does. Is there anything in Jesus' life, does, does God is love fit in that? In the book Prophets and Kings, Ellen White says this, true love seeks first the honor of God and the salvation of souls. Um. You can't go God is love without realizing that God's love is for everybody. And if I'm in that connection, then I'm going to have a burden for every soul. Uh, how many of you heard Elder Boonster last night? You know, what, if, what if a bell rang every time somebody died and went into a Christless grave? Man, we, the bells would be ringing all the time. Do, what do you think? The, you think the Father's heart picks up on that? You think God our Father cares about that? I'm going to tell you, you know, when it says the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost, I want something to be clear to us here. 
There is not a moment that passes between father or son that they are not thinking about seeking and saving the lost. Jesus never gets busy with something that says, oh, I forgot about, oh, you know, I've got, you know, there's people still. Every moment, God's heart is burdened with that, uh, that understanding and that, that passion for his lost children. Son of man came to seek and save that which is lost. That would sum up the life of Jesus pretty nicely. Not that you couldn't use another verse. There are other verses given, as, as I heard. And, and then, you know, one that comes to my mind is, the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and give his life as a ransom for many. Okay, there's other verses, but they all would fit there. The seeking and saving the laws, this is the sum and substance of Jesus' life, right? Now, a disciple, the goal of a disciple is to do what? To be like, let me use a different word that I didn't use, to emulate to emulate the life of the master. If I am trying to emulate the life of Jesus, what must necessarily be part of my life? Is it, it, let me give you the reverse. Is it possible that I would be a disciple of Jesus with no burden for the lost? One question I didn't ask you, which I should have, and I've asked people a lot when, I do a, when I've spoken in different places, is this question, is there a difference between a Christian and a disciple? And then my follow-up question is, should there be? Um, I know where the yes comes from, but I want, and maybe I should ask you this, biblically is there a difference? I want you to look at the book of Acts and look at chapter 11. I'm finding my verse here. Verse 26. Okay, now notice what it says. And when he had found him, speaking about Barnabas and Saul, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the who? Disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Okay? All that's saying is, very simply, that disciple equals Christian, right? In fact, Christian wasn't even a name that they gave themselves. It was, a, it was like the Methodist. Anybody know about the founding of the Methodist church? That it was a name they were called. You got, they were so, oh, they had a method for everything. John Wesley was into holiness, and he's got a method for this. You're a bunch of Methodists, and the name stuck. Well, these guys were a bunch of Christians. You Christians. Why do you think they called them Christians? Because that's what they talked about all the time, right? Who was called Christians? The disciples were. And so when I ask people what the difference is, they say, well, is there a difference? And people say, well, yes, there's a difference between Christian and a disciple. What is the difference? Well, for most people who give that answer, they'll say a disciple is an active Christian, right? <laughs> Well, look, they're really, biblically, look, there's no difference. You're not a disciple of Christ if you're not emulating, seeking to emulate Christ. I mean, that doesn't mean you have it perfectly down, but if I have no interest in the, I've given this example before. Um, some of you who uh, have been, in fact, I was never really a huge basketball fan, and, and not having been a big basketball fan, I still knew who Michael Jordan was. I think just about everybody knew who Michael Jordan was, one of the um, uh, arguably greatest players that ever played the game of basketball, 
Michael Jordan, Jersey number 23, you know, wrote song. In fact, they had a song they wrote about him about being, being like Mike, Gatorade commercial. You remember that? I want to be like Mike. So, uh, you know, let's just say that there's a young man who wants to be like Mike. Okay, Michael Jordan, basketball player, great basketball player. Young man says, I want to be like Mike. You know, he has a sports poster of Michael Jordan in his bedroom. He has, you know, Michael Jordan, you know, had, had promoted the Air, you get the Air Jordan, the Nike Air Jordans. So this young man, of course, wanting to be like Mike, he's got his Air Jordans. Michael Jordan was bald. So this young man wants to style it like Michael Jordan, <laughs> bald. Uh, you can get jerseys of your favorite player. So he gets the, the Bulls jersey, the 23, right? Do I get that right? I messed it up once. And he got the 20. Okay, so this kid has everything going just like Michael Jordan except for one thing. He really hates basketball. Now you tell me something. Would it make any sense to want to be the disciple of somebody whose core substance was something you had no interest in? Of course not. I mean, it's ridiculous to even say that. But all the time it happens in the church where you got people who are, well, it's just not my gift. It's not, you know, if it's not... Sometimes it's not my gifting. Sometimes there's just no interest in it. I've done, I've preached places. I give an appeal. How many want to, we want to, how many, like Sean last night, say, hey, how many of you are in? We're all in. Great. We got outreach after lunch today. We're going to meet back here in the church at three o'clock. And out of the 200 or 300 or 500 people, we get 10. Okay. Now, granted, some people had other plans, but 490 people had other plans. <laughs> But the thing is this, we, for some, somehow or the other, we've lost this understanding that at the core of following Jesus, there's a passion for the lost. Seeking and saving the lost, that was the substance of Jesus' life. And if that's missing in my life, I can't be a disciple. If I have no interest, let me not, not, not say it that way. Maybe it's missing in my life and I say, wow, I realize this and I need to. But if I have no interest in learning how to seek and save the lost, if I have no interest in that, why am I choosing Jesus to be a follower? Why am I following him? May as well follow somebody else. Because you can't factor that out of the life of Jesus. Are you, are you following what I'm saying there? So let's be real clear on this. If I'm going to be a disciple, I've got to love the lost. I've got to be interested in seeking and saving the lost. And if I'm making disciples, I've got to be instilling in other people. That desire to seek and save the lost. And if I'm going around and baptizing people and they're joining my church, but they don't have a desire to seek and save the lost, am I fulfilling the Great Commission? Let's look at a couple other discipleship texts. There's a lot of them. You can do a study on this, but there's a couple I just want to look at with you that are common ones that I want to draw some things out of. Matthew chapter 9, not Matthew, Luke. Luke chapter 9 and verse 23. And you know this one. We're already in Luke, so... I intended to stay in Luke, and then I just shifted you over to Matthew. Sorry about that. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Luke chapter 9 and verse 23. And I, I, I intentionally go to Luke's version of this. I'll show you why in a moment. It says in verse 23, Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me. What does that mean? Follow me. Okay, this is disciple. If you want to be my disciple, just so that we're clear, this is what he's saying. If you want to be my disciple, if you want to follow me, if you want to come after me, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross 
daily and follow me. Now it doesn't say daily in Matthew. And I like the idea. This is a regular, ongoing, living connection, relationship with Jesus. Every day, a renewal of this commitment. I'm going to deny myself and take up my cross. Now, when I say, and when Jesus says, deny yourself and take up your cross, what do you think that refers to? I'm not going to single you out, but I'm going to ask you this. What do you think most people think Jesus is talking about when he says, deny yourself and take up your cross? What am I doing? What am I denying? What's that, what's that dealing with? I mean, practically, I, not just in generally. What, what does it mean I'm going to do now? I'm going to deny myself today. I'm going to commit my life to the Lord. I'm going to deny myself and take up my cross. What does that mean I'm going to be doing today? Surrendering your will to Jesus. Okay, surrendering your will to Jesus is nebulous. I want specifics. What's that? I might have to leave my job. Okay. I'm going to have morning devotions. It might be hard for me to get up extra early, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to make that commitment. Okay. Doing that which I, that, that Paul says, doing that which I know, that that I do, I do not, and that that I normally do. Right. The one thing I want to do, I, I don't do, and that, so what specifically? Anything that is a, uh, anything that goes against. Like what? What kind of things did you do when you became a Christian and decided you're going to take up your cross? Sacrificing what you used to do to take up. <laughs> okay, that's a good, they're good. Look, they're good answers, but you hear, you know, you hear what's happening. We're not being specific. Okay, what I would say is what kind of things? Now, maybe you just don't want to tell everybody what kind of things. Pastor Cameron? Okay, I quit drinking Dr. Pepper. Okay. I was wondering about that this morning. <laughs> this comes from okay, quit drinking Dr. Pepper. You realize, look, this stuff has caffeine in it. This stuff really messes your brain up. I don't know if you're aware of that. I don't have time to go into the whole caffeine web experiment. But uh, anyway, yes. I stopped smoking, drinking. And okay. All right. All right. Meat and cheese. Okay, stop eating certain things. Stop wasting time and knock on doors. Okay, stop wasting time. And she doesn't want to implicate herself in what kind of things she wasted time with. Um, for me, yeah, TV. Let me ask you this. I'm going to admit something. I'm going to admit something here that I shouldn't, but I've done it before, so it's out there somewhere on Audioverse or whatever. But I, I used to watch soap operas when I, um, when I was early, just got married and everything else. Yeah, I'm going to tell you something. They gear TV shows to certain people. General Hospital was geared to young people. There was a, a segment. There was like the old people segment, and then there was a young action, young people segment. And the problem with the soap opera, you know what they do with soap operas. The reason they're called soap operas is they used to use them to sell soap and products. That's what, and so the goal was to get the viewer to keep watching, and so you could keep, and that's why you sit, if you ever, anybody, I'm not going to ask for hands. I was going to ask you. I'm not going to ask you to implicate yourself. But if you ever watch soap operas, you're like, oh, come on with the commercials already. Nothing happens. You can miss a whole week of the show and sum it up in five minutes. <laughs> and so, but all it does is it keeps you on, keeps you on. Well, newsflash for you. If, you, if you're watching TV now, almost every TV show does this now. Okay? New TV series, they all end with a cliffhanger that leads you to the next series, leads you to the next, leads you, and then keeps you hooked into it. You can't not watch the next episode. It used to be you get a nice tidy episode and then you didn't need to know what happened for the next few weeks. You can miss, you, not anymore. So everything's like a soap opera, okay? But I mean, that was something and it wasn't, I mean, that and other TV shows and movies, well, I had to make a decision that I'm not gonna do that anymore, okay? Uh, so we all make those decisions. Now, usually when we talk about denying us, I'm actually going off topic because 
that's what we talk about. We say, well, when you come to Christ, you deny yourself and you take up your cross and you follow you. You get rid of all these bad habits and, you know, you bear down and get up for devotions and what have you. But this is discipleship language, right? Mm -hmm. If anyone will come after me. Now, when you're following somebody, how do I word this? What has to happen? Hmm. If I'm following Jesus, who did it first? Jesus did. I'm emulating him. So Jesus says, if you want to come after me, you got to do like I did. You got to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Whoa, whoa, whoa. When did Jesus quit drinking, smoking and carousing and watching soap operas? Well, he didn't. So here's the question. How did Jesus deny himself? He gave he, his life uh, to save others. All right. Everything he did was for the... All right. And that, so that, that, and that even comes to the taking up the cross. So he, didn't, he left heaven. What did he leave? Did he leave bad stuff behind? He left good stuff. Why? To save others. Now, don't miss this. Jesus denied himself even good things for the salvation of others. And he says, if you want to follow me, you've got to be willing to take up your cross daily. Deny yourself daily. What Jesus is saying is there may be hopes and dreams and ambitions that you have that being a follower of Jesus will cost you in this life. Good things. You might want to go to college and have some good job, this and that, and the Lord says, I want you to be a missionary over here somewhere where you're probably going to lose your life. We had an appeal at GYC this year. The, the Mena group working over in the Middle East called the young people and said, <laughs> I mean, Homer Tricartan gives the appeal. And what an appeal. I've never heard an appeal like it. God may be calling you. He says, I don't want all of you to come. God may be calling you to be a missionary and you might not be coming back home. You might lose your life over there. How many kids went forward? You weren't there at this one. At least 50 young people went forward for that call. They were willing to give up good things so others could be saved. That's what Jesus is talking about. Not that we don't, there are, there's in that self-denial, there is getting rid of bad habits. But at the core of it, see, if all our Christianity is, is getting rid of bad habits so we can be saved, that's not Christianity. When you follow Christ, and you experience that transforming power and you're willing to lay aside even good things, your own ambitions and hopes and dreams, so others can be saved. The rest of, the rest of, of, of getting rid of whatever grows out of that in a much more natural way. Otherwise, I've watched it. I've seen people in the church. They've been in church. I know people have been in the church 15, 20 years and they're still resentful for, because of everything they had to give up to follow Jesus and all that they can't do. And you ask them about their Adventism, and they're like, yeah, well, you know, we can't do this, and we can't do that, but soon Jesus will come, you know? He says, deny yourself and take up your cross. Where did Jesus take his cross? And this is just what you were saying. He took it to his crucifixion. He laid down his life for the salvation of others. Jesus said, if you're going to be my disciple, you've got to be willing to lay down your life for the salvation of others. That doesn't mean you've got to go be a martyr somewhere. That means you've got to go knock on that door when your heart is in your throat and your, your palms are sweaty and you're panicked and you feel like you want to die. 
because you're nervous, but you're willing to put yourself where you're nervous and uncomfortable and everything else because you're taking up your cross like Jesus took up his cross. You think Jesus was comfortable being passed around between Pilate and Herod and Annas and Caiaphas? And I just read that again in Desire of Ages. I mean, Ellen White says it's on a, she doesn't even go into description. She won't even go into description of all that he suffered under the hands of his persecutors. Sorry, I happen sometimes. You think about what the Lord went through for us, and, and, we, and we say, oh, I can't do that for Jesus. Yeah. It's too hard for me. It's too hard to go knock on a door. Because why? Well, they might think something about me. Um, look, being a disciple of Jesus means be, being willing to follow Jesus where he went. He came from glory, denied himself in every aspect of his earthly life, which ended on that cross of Calvary for you and me. And he's that, that at the core of discipleship, that's what it means to follow Jesus. We talk about being disciples. It means following Jesus where Jesus was willing to go and uh, denying yourself even good things. I'll get your hand in a little bit, Logan. Even, even good things. And so I've said that to, uh, before when I speak to, I'm telling you, we have... Uh, We've, we've got ourselves in a pickle in some ways now because, especially as parents, we all have ambitions for our kids. Sometimes parents make it harder for our kids to be Christians then because we say, you're what? Well, you went to some call, what, you think you go to some call, some youth conference and you're going to go over? I don't know what those kids heard when they got home. I'm going to go over to the Middle East and be a missionary. Oh, no, you're not. I got plans for you. You got a scholarship. This is all paid for or whatever it may happen to be. We, get, we made it so God can't call people anymore. Jesus isn't allowed to call people to be disciples because we got plans. So I want you to understand that Bible discipleship is so different from what we see today. And God is calling for a revival of true discipleship in our church. We need to be clear on what it means to follow Jesus and we got to be willing to lay down whatever it takes. The Bible says when Jesus called... Uh, uh, Peter and James and John and Andrew says they left all and followed him. Poor Zebedee's left in the boat with the nets, if you read about it. I mean, they're working with dad. He's counting on them. Ellen White says they had family members dependent on them for their support. And what happens? Jesus says, follow me. And whoop, they leave the nets and tsh, they're gone. They're going to be people who will tell you you're irresponsible when you follow Jesus. Look, man, Jesus is calling people now. His coming is at hand and people need to understand and he's going to call people different ways and different places, but that's discipleship. The great commission of Jesus, these were the parting words of Jesus to his church. And I want you to notice that in some form or another, every gospel ends with the commission to go and either feed his sheep, make disciples, preach the gospel, some form of that, right? Parting words are the words you speak. When you're partly speaking parting words to somebody, those are your most important words that you can think of. We may never see each other again, Julie, and I'm going to give you that, you know, this is what, what can I leave you with? And I'm going to think of these, right? If your kids are going away or something, you're going to be thinking very carefully, what is the most important thing I can say? What does Jesus leave us with? The Great Commission. The thing that's burning in his heart, seeking and saving the lost. I want you to go and make disciples. Go make disciples. What is a disciple? We've looked at a little bit of what a disciple is. A disciple follows the master. First, we have to be disciples. 
And then we need to make others disciples. And I'm going to tell you what's been happening in our churches is we've not been making disciples. We've been filling our churches with church members and never teaching them what it means to... That's why we have the Discipleship Handbook. But the handbook, here's what's happened. We've developed a resource here in the Michigan Conference called the Discipleship Handbook, and it comes with a mentor's guide. And the, the whole idea was this. We wanted anybody, any church member, however timid, to be able to mentor somebody. So we gave them a, the handbook, spells things out, and then the, mentors, the mentor can say, hey, I'm not sure about this. Oh, hey, it's in the handbook. Just kind of work with this. But here's what we've seen happening. People will say, I don't have one here. I'm going to call this my, my, hand, my discipleship handbook. Oh, great. Julie, we're glad you just got baptized. You know, here's your handbook. Read it. Enjoy it. Yeah. Here's your handbook. Read it. Enjoy it. And we do that. No, no, no. That's not discipleship. There's a mentor's guide, which means there's an actual person that connects with that new person and begins to connect, connect them with other people in church and walk them through and coach them and that kind of thing. A person, we're making church members, but we're not making disciples. And, and I want you to listen to a couple statements, and I'm going to take a break after this, and then we're going to, my brother Jim's going to pick up. This is from Christ Object Lessons, page 57. Sometimes you bring people into the church, and then I've heard members say, well, you've got to be careful. They're new, and you don't want to put too much on them right away. Listen to this. At the very outset of the Christian life, what's the very outset? At the very beginning, every believer should be taught its foundation principles. He should be taught that he is not merely to be saved by Christ's sacrifice, but that he is to make the life of Christ his life and the character of Christ his character. That's an amazing statement. Don't miss it. I'm going to read it again. The new person should be taught that they are not merely saved by Christ's sacrifice, but they're to make the life of Christ their life and the character of Christ their character. She continues to say, let all be taught, let all be taught that they are to bear burdens and to deny natural inclination. Let them learn the blessedness of working for Christ, following him in self-denial and enduring hardness as good soldiers. Let them learn to trust his love and to cast on him their cares. Let them taste the joy of winning souls for him. In their love and interest for the lost, they will lose sight of self. You know how many problems come when we just, we got navel gazing is what we used to call it, right? Because we got nothing else to do. And then we get into all kinds of problems and fights with people in the church. If you're winning, if you're busy Amen. trying to reach people for Christ, you're too busy to get in arguments with everybody in the church. She says, let them taste the joy of winning souls to him. In their love for an interest for the lost, they will lose sight of self. The pleasures of the world will lose their power to attract and its burdens to dishearten. I'm going to read that last sentence again. Christ Object Lessons, page 57. The pleasures of the world will lose their power to attract and its burdens to dishearten. Okay? This is what I mean. If we get clear on what the discipleship is, the things that we got to get rid of in our lives... Those will take, those will, those will, I'm not going to say they kind of come naturally. There's a, there's, a, there's a discipline that comes there, but the motivation is infinitely more because you have a different focus. Now, this is the one that I, I want to leave you with before our break. Christian Service, page 58. Ellen White says, It is evident that all the sermons that have been preached have not developed a large class of self-denying workers. You know what a self-denying worker is? 
What's a self-denying worker? It's a disciple. It's just another way of saying a disciple, right? Deny yourself, right? Take up your cross daily. It is evident that all the sermons that have been preached have not developed a large class of self-denying workers. You can listen to sermons all day long, all year long, but you got to choose to act on those things. She goes on to say, this subject is to be considered as involving the most serious results. Our future for eternity is at stake. Bottom line is this. We can't just keep making church members. We've got to get serious about discipleship. First of all, about what it means for us to be disciples of Jesus and then how we can make other people disciples for Jesus. And again, that's why you're here. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.